1: Take a walk back to the future in this episode of the Software People Stories that spans different countries riding on different career tracks with Shane Hasty in conversation with Shivaguru. With a solid start in COBOL and assembler programming and working on the once upon a time green IBM screens for telemachines to end user computing using mainframes to create reports working directly with end users to starting a company in partnership with his wife delivering IT solutions, Shane has had a variety of career experiences. And then, in the early 2000s, interacting with several signatories of the Agile Manifesto and moving towards developing an Agile mindset and living with the values to becoming a coach and trainer. Shane says about Agile, he knows it works because he works in it. He shares what learning means to people and why people show up for training sessions, how to be effective by changing flavors of interactions for remote learning today, and how you know if you have it in you to be a coach or trainer. Listen on.
0: Hi, Shane. Welcome to the Software
2: People Stories. Hi, Shiv. Thank you so much for having me.
0: We usually start with the origin story of our guests. You know, what got you into IT, or then we can probably get into Agile and coaching and all that.
2: (laughs) We're going back decades now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What got
2: me into... (laughs) Yeah. We're, we're both um, somewhat gray. Oh, yeah. I'm gray bearded. You're gray haired. I'm, I'm bald. So,
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. what little is there is gray. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, we're, we're, we're about the same vintage.
0: Mm. Uh, what I've got been me in into. About 40, 41 years now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I I started in 1982. Okay. So, yeah, ne- nearly 40 years. Yeah. 38 years now. I started, I was, I'm a New Zealander by birth, but we were living in South Africa at that stage. And there's a, a company there who I believe are still there and they, and, and still doing stuff. They're, the organization is called Fonseil and Pritchard. And they had an interesting business model for teaching you data processing as it was in, the, in those days. This was before it was called IT, it, were, it and it was mainframe computing. It was COBOL. It was, and if you passed a series of aptitude tests, uh, you could get into, it was a three-month full-time cobol programming course and okay. uh, the attraction was it was free as long as they had an exam or not an exam they had a test every friday and as long as every every friday you didn't drop below 70% for 2 weeks in a row and then at the end of the of the program you came out you've got a really solid basis in the concepts of mainframe programming at that stage, it was COBOL and ended with, with also Learning Assembler. And at that point, pretty much they sell you. <laughs> they, they, you were placed with organizations who then paid for the recruitment fee and for your training and all the rest of it. So I went and joined a... I got into the program. I passed, got, got all the way through the program and I joined a, a financial institution so my first commercial programming was in actually was in assembler on IBM mainframes. Oh. Um, for a, yeah, a financial institution we were look, we were working on the the teller systems for the for the mainframe mm-hmm. and IBM technology the old green screen the, the Uh, mechanical keyboards and the keyboards that really went click 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 (laughs) then I stayed with that organization for the contracted year and at the end I was not entirely happy with the the way things were so I was looking around for something different and I joined another financial institution who at that stage were doing we were doing Pretty interesting stuff in terms of the what we called end-user computing then. Mm-hmm. So this was again using mainframes, but uh, looking at putting into the hands of the of the the users, the customers, the ability to design reports and query data and so forth. So I was part of a small team of six people who were supporting this end user community. So I I got, uh, if I look back at it, I was sitting down next to real world customers. We Mm -hmm. were building a piece, showing it to them, getting feedback, changing it. And (laughs) it was iterative. It was incremental. It was customer focused. It was rapid learning. It sounds remarkably like agile to me and this we were doing 1983 and i spent very happy five years with with that organization doing that and then moved uh into starting my my own company my wife and i founded a a business doing uh support and uh, software development for initially for anyone Um, Mm -hmm. i'd I'd been incredibly fortunate in that role again. This was, you know, the early 1980s. They, I think, they acquired the second or third IBM personal computer, the original PC, PC. <laughs> <laughs> running running PC DOS.
3: <laughs>
2: and they, my uh, manager at the time, sort of because we were in that end-user computing, and this was seen to be a an end-user technology. They gave it to me and said, see what we can do with this. Mm-hmm. So I really got into that that PC revolution right at the ground level there, mainly programming and looking at, at how we could apply those technologies and use these tools. Uh, I did feel at the time that one of the nicest peripherals you can have for a personal computer is a 3090 model model 800 mainframe that you mm-hmm. can then tap into with the, with all of its capability and storage and the half a million liner lines a minute printer or 50,000 line a minute print the big huge things like that so you know, it was fun we had the dedicated use of a mainframe which was the organization's hot standby mainframe so it was the yeah, if there was a disaster recovery we had to we, we would lose our con- connectivity immediately, but most of the time you didn't have the disaster recovery. It was sitting there as a hot standby unit and we had the the full usage of that. So then I yeah, went on my wife and I started our own business looking at at uh, generally doing software for the personal computing marketplace, ended up focusing on small to medium-sized airlines. Back okay. office systems for small to medium sized airlines around Africa mm-hmm. and did that for, Ooh, in one form or another from 1987 until 2011. Wow. And it was, but in 19, 1997, I moved back home to New Zealand. And so that became more a side element than the, than the full business, uh, than my total focus. We'd sold the company to, uh, to a friend and, uh, I'd, we moved home to New Zealand, I carried on doing some support. And yeah, and up until 2011, that was the last time that I, I wrote code in anger. So, and when I moved back to New Zealand, I joined uh, initially, I, I got a role with a, with a company here, leading teams building software for, it was f- facilities management and service desk type, type products. Yeah. And then After five years there, I was looking for something different, and in 2002, I joined Softed as a trainer in the business analysis space because I'd done a lot of analysis over the years and and a a fair amount of project manager. I, I decided I was a much better analyst than I was a project manager, and trying to combine the two was not a good good idea. Then joined, yeah, so joined Softed. That was, early, that was the early 2000s. And just as the ideas of agility were starting to come around. And one of the great things about SoftEd was they used to run really good conferences. Okay. They would bring people out to talk about what's new in the industry. And it was the, the, the Software Development Conference. And we, in 2002, they brought out, uh, I think, Alistair, Alistair Coburn, Jim Highsmith, Steve Miller, and at least one other of the uh, Agile Manifesto signatories to talk about what is this new Agile thing. So the manifesto had been signed and and was publicized in uh, 2001. 2002, it was now starting to spread the ideas. And part of my role there, aside from training, was looking after hosting the the speakers at the conferences. So I had the um, joy of Having to look after these people, not just in the event, but socially. And we we took them around and showed them bits of the country and and so forth. So spent a week at a time really exploring the ideas mm-hmm. there and and getting an understanding of the of the intent behind many of those ideas and I was incredibly fortunate and privileged as we over those those years to to meet many of the the leading lights, the people Mm -hmm. who whose ideas we we draw upon today and who Mm -hmm. gave us the foundation of the the Agile movement. So I was yeah incredibly fortunate there. Stayed with SoftEd for 15 years, had a had a wonderful time there and then again looking time for something new wanting to step it up and make a difference at an even bigger level mm-hmm. and i joined ic agile to with that with that intent and i've been with ic agile now it's coming up 4 years soon and it was it's been a great move uh, it's a wonderful organization deeply founded on the agile mindset and we live the values. It's, it's wonderful to be able to point to a, to an organization that I work for and say, all of the things that we talk about in terms of the, the humanistic values and the way of, and the agile mindset and what it means to, to, what it can mean to an organization. I know it works because I work in it.
0: It's really nice. Yeah. Very well compressed Quick <laughs> intro into how you got here. But that triggers a lot of questions and uh, curiosity, I would say. See, your transition at different levels, one, from an assembler programmer to maybe a PC programmer connecting to a mainframe, which goes beyond, probably have to think a little larger than writing maybe just a few commands or instructions, right? And then I also see your transition from an individual contributor to an entrepreneur and then someone who led teams. So how have these transitions been for you?
2: Mm, how have the transitions been? they have been some of it was was deliberate, some of it was just natural progression. So when I still recall the the first time I played with that PC, that very first personal computer device i'd seen the apple II prior to that and a friend of mine had one so i'd done a little bit of of basic programming but not much but this was this was really okay here is a technology with huge potential Mm -hmm. i don't know what the potential is but there's something here that is so different what is it going to become so when that opportunity was there, that one I grasped. That that was wow. This is going to be exciting. This is where the future of computing and and I could see the the shift from computing being something done by by people in white coats locked away in in mainframe control rooms to being something that happens on your desk, mm. and that the the potential of that transition was exciting for me that was that was really fun then shifting into the next next shift to to an entrepreneur that was almost almost by mistake I'd actually been looking for another job things had changed a little bit and I was well, it was time to move on and I'd had I had a couple of job offers. So the at that stage, you know, in in, in data processing, you were, it was considered to be a uh, high risk area of the business. So when you resigned, they pretty much marched you out the building straight away. I gave them six weeks' notice, and mm. I was now I had six weeks off at full pay. I promised a friend of mine that if I ever had some time, I'd have a look at what they they had a manufacturing. Company and we were looking. They they wanted to automate some of those processes and look at replacing some of the manual procedures. And suddenly, I had the time. So I said, "Why not? Oh, let's let's do this." And it was really a few weeks into that. I looked at what I was charging them on a on an hourly basis for this work and at the job offers I'd been made and thought, you know what, this can work. (laughs) (laughs) And what the hang? <laughs> let's let's take a, let's take a risk. Let's uh and my wife was was happy to to join me with that. She's been incredibly supportive. We've been uh, married just over 40 years. So wow, congratulations. Uh, she's been uh been there with me all the way through for when we founded that company, we actually were business partners. And we did all sorts of interesting things. At one stage, we had our own PC hardware brand. Okay. Uh, we would buy in components and build them. And uh, to the shock and horror of some of the the people around us, she was actually much better at assembling and putting those pieces of equipment together than I was. So she did most of the, the, of, the of the the technical, you know, the, the the screwdriver technical yeah. stuff. Uh, and. Um, she also did we we offered training services she did did a lot of that and she ran all the administrative side of the company thank goodness i i was able to focus on the stuff that i'm really passionate about which at that stage was writing code and looking at how these the, these technologies can be used then the the next i'd say big transition for me was switching into the role of an educator
3: mm-hmm.
2: it's and it, that was a very deliberate thing i was I'd been successful and the industry had done, I'd done well in, in this industry.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was time to, how do I share that knowledge? Mm. I'd, at that stage I had 20 years of experience. I'd made a fair number of mistakes and I wanted to be able to, I'd, I'd done some training as part of other roles, mm-hmm. but it was always on the side. And more and more as I was doing that, I was really enjoying the imparting of that knowledge and, and, and building up other people. So when the opportunity came to join Soft Ed, it just made sense. And it was yeah. in my life, it was the right time to, to start giving back. Yeah. And when I finished up with Soft Ed, I we did a, a calculation over the years. I trained 40,000 people approximately. Wow. At least a few of them, I think it made a difference in their lives. And, yeah. and that was, that was a, a wonderful privilege to be to be able to, to influence that many people. And with the step again in, in, out of that into working with IC Agile, that was another deliberate and conscious, okay, let's take this to a higher level. Because now I influence the people who are teaching the people. Right. So hopefully I'm able to leverage what I've learned and share that with the world.
0: Very effective. In fact, many of us who got together in PM Power is also the same thing. If our experience can be useful, how can we share it? But then there are a couple of other transitions also. I suppose you might have gone through, which is from being an engineer who said, "No, you got mm-hmm. trained very formally, where probably everything needed to be specified, or you need to, you can't have any ambiguity." To even as an entrepreneur, probably there are so many things that are ambiguous. And of course, when you look at um, your early style of working that you said about Mm -hmm. sitting with the users and then trying to evolve something, discover something, experiment. Nowadays, there is at least these two big schools of thought, which is the traditional Mm -hmm. way saying everything can be predicted. You draw up a huge plan. Mm -hmm. Everything must go on to being agile and being able to deal with ambiguity. So how was that transition for you about? For me, into that was
2: an e- a really easy transition. That, that was something, mm. in fact, I, I, I think that was part of what I was unhappy about in that first role, okay. because we were trying to be so rigid. And, and I saw that, and, and this was back in 1982, I saw that. De- trying to define everything up front, locking mm. it down mm. and then building it Yes, we delivered to spec
3: mm.
2: but there was there was no feedback did it make customers happier?
3: Mm.
2: Did it impact the lives of the tellers? Mm-hmm. And what we discovered was uh, a few times when we did actually have some conversations is that most of the work we were doing was actually not particularly useful for those people Mm. it had been defined and we delivered exactly what was asked for Mm. but when they saw it it was yeah that's not what i need Mm. so in that that transition into that 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 second role where i was working closely with people, getting the feedback. And, and when I went into my own business, we took that approach. This was 1987. Rapid applications development was a model that was out there. The, the spiral development from Barry Boom. So I knew that this stuff existed. And I'd done a little bit of reading about it. So we were trying to apply it because it just made sense. And in periods in my career, when I've been the least happy, is when I've been trying to be the most predictive oh, okay the uh I, I can think of a couple of projects when I was working for that software company in in Wellington We were working all around the world, but there were a couple where we we tried to lock everything down up front and get that those detailed requirements and yeah, we delivered exactly what was asked for mm. but it wasn't what was needed Uh-oh. um one was a, a huge the the whole thing ended up in in a, a legal battle. Oh. But because I had signatures all over a specification document, the customer had to pay. Hmm. But the product never went into production because it didn't didn't do what they need. So there was a huge amount of waste in the work that had been done all the way through that. And that one really sat with me because i felt I felt bad yeah everyone involved in that initiative everyone working on that project was doing their best Mm. but it was set up to fail because of the way it was the whole thing was was designed so that sat with me for a long time
0: extending that you said as a trainer you touched forty thousand. wow large number how do you transfer the mind of shame to those people as a trainer when you expect them to internalize things that they learn,
2: <laughs> you don't. Mm. You you tell stories, mm-hmm. you share ideas, and you offer. You can offer some knowledge, mm-hmm. and people will pick it up. They can get the they can get the tools and techniques. But a, as a trainer, you're giving somebody a foundation of knowledge to work on. Mm. They take that and they make it real. Okay. So it comes down to the individual who wants to draw that, who takes that and says, mm-hmm. ah, I can see how this applies in my context. As a trainer, as an educator, you are offering your your experience, your knowledge, your advice, but you're offering it to people. Mm-hmm. It's up to them to take it and do something with it. Mm. And, it's really, I found it really important to recognize that quite early on, mm-hmm. that you can't make somebody learn. Mm. That is a choice that they make. Now, fortunately, the vast majority of people who came to the courses were there because they wanted to learn. They had a desire to. Private training organization doing training inside companies or offering public courses, generally the people who on the glass want to be there you don't get many prisoners in mm-hmm. the classroom mm. but when you do come across those people you have to be able to accept that that's their choice know mm. why are you why are you here because the boss told me to come okay well let's see if we can find some value for you in this time mm-hmm. but if we can't that's also okay mm. because the choice is is in in the the attendee in the participants hand and we talk about them as participants in a training they're not students they are participants they are people who are participating in their own learning journey mm. and that's a choice
0: yeah it's a nice way to put it yeah in fact from teaching the narrative change to learning mm. even with an organization's you don't say trainers is there to facilitate their learning yeah, good yeah. participants. Yeah. So, how does this participation, or how has it changed, post COVID?
2: Well, what I see, and and certainly this is something we've seen in I C Agile, is the the massive shift from in person courses to remote learning. Had you asked me a year and a half ago, can remote learning be as good as in person learning? I would have said absolutely not. Mm-hmm. At IC Agile, we did a year before COVID, we had actually come up with criteria for what good remote learning looks like. So we, we were ahead of the curve from that point of view in that, in that we had defined design guidelines and we knew we'd done some, some research and we were learning about what, what remote learning is. But we, we still, we, we definitely had that bias of a remote experience will, will be less effective than an in-person experience. Today, I can hand on heart say I have seen remote training experiences that are as good and in some ways better than the in-person experience. And that has been eye-opening for me. So COVID has had that huge impact in terms of the, the pivot from in-person to remote learning. In uh, I live in New Zealand, as, as we mentioned. We're free to gather in person and so forth, still at this stage. And uh, there have been, uh, I've attended and I've delivered an in-person training course as well as remote courses. Hmm. So it's not that we can't, but the choices, also leveraging, being able to leverage the technologies that are available to us. How do we maximize the value for the in-person or uh, at, at that synchronous time? Uh, you and I are sitting two continents away from each other, seven hours time difference, and we're having a chat in real time, and it's close to being in person. Right. The only thing we can't do is is, is share a beer, uh, uh, and we could even we could even do that if we both went and got the same beer. <laughs> but the the other thing that we've seen is the the, the creative way in which course designers have figured out how to take advantage of the remote capabilities and the things that a remote course enables us. One that definitely springs to mind for me is the, instead of having people come to a hotel for, for two days of in-person instruction and then go away, I can take that 16 hours of, of instructional content, spread it out over two weeks. Mm-hmm. At two or three hours a day, every couple of days, give people some pre work, pre reading, vid- videos to watch. Then, when we come together, we focus the collaborative time, not on imparting the boring theory,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but how do we make that theory real? Hmm. And how do we tackle the questions and conversations? And then, after that, go away carry on putting it into practice now come back for another session take some time to reflect on how you applied what you learned and then apply something new so it changes the the flavor of the interactions in the synchronous component of the of the the course and you can spread that out so people have time to practice in between the sessions they they the learning itself deepens hmm. And that's, that's why I say I've seen classes that are better remotely than they would be in person. Now, could you do that with an in-person situation? Yes, you could if you were embedded in an organization. And we've seen that model where the, the coach is taking the trainer role and they, they teach people a little, little bit and then they go away and come back in a, in a couple of weeks. The sort of cohort learning programs, those are great now we can spread that we can extend that to to others
0: so as an educator are you able to establish the same kind of connect with every participant
2: yes again it's te- somewhat technology dependent the tools do make a difference but again i'm going to refer to you and i right now we're connected we're looking each other in the eye the technology helps hmm. now what's important as the ability to look each other in the eye one of the things that does make a huge difference for that engagement is just turn the camera on that is so deeply important in terms of creating that interaction because yeah we're, we're losing some of the body language we're losing and if we if we lose the camera it's incredibly hard to build that rapport but the tools, the technology, and, and generally around the world today, the bandwidth is there. Yeah. So one of the things that we, we do strongly recommend is that in, in the training environment, just keep the camera on. Mm. And it doesn't matter if there's children behind you and the dogs walking through. We're inside people's homes today. Mm. We're all seeing that all the time. And in fact, in many ways, it's built, it builds better rapport because we're seeing each other in the real environment.
0: Yeah, so that means the participants also should be open to be vulnerable or expose that. Yeah. 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 Because that is one thing I, at least personally, have been seeing that in a few of the engagements that I have. People are a little reluctant to turn the camera on. They may be turning it on for a few minutes, and then they have their reasons, saying that there are four of us, Competing for the bandwidth, you know, with the kids' mm. classes going on, and maybe the spouse also doing something, et cetera. So that, that does become a challenge. See, the um, other related point is uh, while you mentioned that you are primarily there to share stories, share your experiences, and then it is up to the, the learner or the participant to internalize it. Do they come back to you sometimes saying this worked or this didn't work or Shane, could we have done this better?
2: I've been fortunate and yes, quite a few people have approached me either uh, after the classes or bump into them to the streets, in the street or meet them at a a conference later or or whatever. Many people have come up to me and said, yeah, it's commonly, you might not remember me, but. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I, I will say I'm... I'm reasonably good with faces. I'm terrible with names.
3: <laughs>
2: but yeah, and one of the things that I know uh, as an instructor and, and pretty much every instructor that I, that I know likes to hear from people after their courses, oh, if you've got a question, reach yeah. out, let us know, did this work? And, and if it didn't, well, that's a learning for all of us something that worked in my context might not work in yours so now we've all learned that there's the contextual element there that maybe we didn't know about
0: this is probably a time for me to segue into one of your recent activities Mm -hmm. of this Mm -hmm. ethical coaching in fact Mm -hmm. i like the way it's introduced saying that it is a multi-generational or a multi-continental contribution what was the trigger for this in a sense, do you think that...
2: Um, what yeah. triggered... So we're, we're talking about the Agile Alliance, Agile Coaching Ethics Initiative, which is a volunteer piece of work that I've been involved in. Craig Smith and myself chaired it, for, and uh, Alex Slowly has joined the, as the third co-chair. I, I'm actually going to be stepping away from a lot of involvement in this now. I, um, and there's a group of about 32 volunteers and we've come up with a set of a code of ethical conduct for agile coaching. Well, that's that's our goal, to come up with something that people who are involved in agile coaching in any way can look at and say, here is something that I can commit to as a set of ethical guidelines. What triggered it was was a number of conversations about why isn't there a code of conduct? Um, Mm -hmm. If we look at the Other bodies in coaching, so professional coaching, facilitation, mentoring, teaching, there are codes of ethics for every one of those professions. And for some of of them, there are multiple codes of ethics. And there are bodies who maintain those codes of ethics. So um, in the professional coaching space, there's the International Coach Federation, for instance, the ICF. Yeah, And they, the, the first of their, the, the, they have a list of competencies that a professional coach has to have. And the very first one is abiding by ethical standards. Mm. And as an ICF coach, you are obliged to let your coachees know that you have, that you, there is this code of ethical conduct that you are obliged to abide by. And this is what I promised to do. Hmm. We don't have that in Agile Coaching. Right. Now, we, we could say, but if you're an Agile Coach, you're doing elements of professional coaching, facilitation, teaching, mentoring, if we think of the, the coaching framework from the Agile Coaching Institute, and then you need to abide by all of those. So that, that's one mm. approach. Generally, we don't see that happening. Mm. So we wanted to see, was there a space for this? And we brought the, the original group of volunteers. We started by saying, could we just point people to one of these existing codes of ethics and say, abide by that? If you're going to call yourself an agile coach, abide by that, and that'll be good. And then when we looked at them, we found that every one of the, the, the others that I referred to didn't quite fit Okay. Taking professional coaching as an example, one of the important stances of the professional coach is neutrality in terms of outcome and content. As an agile coach, I bring a deliberate bias towards agility. Right. That's a, that is a, a, a definite, deliberate, conscious bias that I bring hmm. in my coaching interactions. So I can't necessarily hold that neutral stance. I will bring the mm-hmm. hey what would an agile approach be with this initiative with this challenge so we did feel that there was a space there was an opportunity to open this up and and define a code of ethical conduct for agile coaching mm-hmm. and that's what this this volunteer group and i'm just one of 32 people so it, it i've done i've been fortunate to be able to to do a bit of facilitation, but no, it, it, it wasn't me. It was, it was the, the group of people who did it together. And yeah, we've I'm... had wonderful discussions and extensive debates. And there is now a published draft, Code of Ethical Conduct for Agile Coaching that you can download and view or view and download from the Agile Alliance.
0: Yeah, I think that's spoken like a true facilitator or an enabler. And it also distilled to just about 18 points. So it is not pages and pages that I need to read. So as we draw to the close of uh, this episode, I have one question for you, Mm -hmm. uh, somewhat related to the code of ethics. If somebody was to consider a role as a coach or an educator in agile, what would your guidance be? Before even I have to sign the code of ethics, do I have it in me to
2: train or coach? Do you care more about the outcomes for other people than for yourself? Hmm. Can you take the stance of a servant leader? Mm -hmm. And is it okay to not be the center of attention, but to allow other people? Because when you do your job really well, nobody notices. You disappear in the background, and that's good. Hmm. But you have to be comfortable to allow that to happen. Wow
0: simple words but profound I think that's something that one should consider I guess before jumping in because nowadays you find everybody wanting to be everything which is the latest fad right have that label on the shoulder
2: so and yeah, yeah have a look at the at the code of ethical conduct and say are these things that I can align with that I can hold up and say yeah I will behave like this
0: on that note Shane I think we can wrap up this conversation but it does trigger a few more things and definitely, Hopefully soon, we should be able to share a beer.
2: I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, Shiv, okay. thank you so much for having me. Thanks, you.
1: We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People Stories.
0: If you like this episode, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and
1: spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story,
0: contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.